Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 45 for the week ending Monday, February 22nd. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. Now, my name is Andy Lemasugu and... My usual partner in crime on the show is Defo Mohapi, but he's out of town on business this week. So we've enlisted a special guest to sit in for him, the talented lawyer-turned-startup co-founder, Kyle Torrington of Lexnove. How's it, my guy? Adele, thank you very much for having me. I don't know whether it's a delight to have a lawyer present. <laughs> most uh, say it is until I slide the rates card across to them. Then it becomes a little bit of a nightmare for most people. Well, thankfully, folks, he won't be billing us by the minute. <laughs> I won't? <laughs> you better not. Now, I'll ask you to tell us a little more about yourself in a bit. And I'm especially looking forward to hearing your views on some of the more high-profile legal issues we've been covering in the last quarter. You know, the stuff that's been impacting Africa's digital tech and innovation scene. Now, that's all coming up after the news. Now, if you, like Kyle, are joining us for the very first time, head on straight to africantechroundup.com and there you'll find all our previous episodes and uh, do, of course, follow us on Twitter and Instagram for useful news updates and candid commentary. We promise our handle on both platforms is at African Roundup. Can't wait to hear from you. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. But before we go any further, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or MP3 player. Sign up right away or at least as soon as this podcast is over by getting a great book called Hacked Again by Scott Scober and narrated by John Pruden. Just click through to audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech for your free audiobook. Now, before we get into this week's news, do tell us a little bit about yourself, Kyle. Uh, tell us a little bit about Lexnov, your, your startup. Yeah, what's going on in your life at the moment? Thank you. Um, being a previous or a recovering attorney, as we like to call ourselves, I left the practice during uh, October 2014 to found Lexnov with my co-founder, Andrew Taylor. We launched during July of 2015, and our aim is to sort of seed a revolution in African law in that people can come onto the platform, sketch out a description of their legal matter, and lawyers on the back end are able to bid uh, or submit proposals on a fixed price basis to do your legal work. The client can then choose which attorney best suits him based on previous ratings and reviews, legal pedigree, where they're located, the cost, and the whole matter is then done on our online ecosystem. So it's very, very different to the uncertainty created by hourly billing rates, um, and it's a whole new approach to law, and it's, it's something that... Uh, hasn't been tackled to an online platform until now, which we're very, very proud of. It's sort of like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, an Uber, the Uber of uh, legal services. It's, it's a combination, I would say, of both Uber for legal services as well as, well as Elance for legal services. Elance is very much, it's a site premised on a bidding service where most people can use guys located in other countries to do work. Obviously, with legal services and other professional services, you require someone with local knowledge who can help you, and that simply isn't the case with Elance. And obviously, Uber, you're unfortunately going to get a driver, not a lawyer at the end of the day. So that's not going to help. 
<laughs> well, I know you guys are basically specialize in South African law for the moment. Do you have any plans to expand to other areas of Africa where a lot of our listeners are listening to us? Yeah, we do. Um, not, I mean, we've got no time frame in mind at this point, but we want to get through into the Kenyas, the Nigerias, etc., where there are some great sort of bustling uh, economies. Um, but we're looking to first win over the South African market before looking to spread our wings, because if you can't win over your own market, it's going to be very hard to win over markets that uh, you aren't entirely familiar with. Well, the one thing you, you do keep an eye on is legal trends across the continent. And we're really hoping to, to, to sort of get your perspectives on a lot of the interesting things that have been happening this, uh, in the last quarter. has been insane for our ecosystem. And um, for the moment, though, let's get into the news. Yeah, you ready? Oh, yes, I'm ready. <laughs> All right. If you have anything to, to add or you want to throw in as I go along, you feel free. Yeah. Okay, let's shoot. Go ahead. All right. Well, this week we start with some good news. Uh, among the worthy CSI initiatives that tech giant Samsung has recently announced is one that we particularly dig. Now, now Samsung is planning to launch solar-powered digital villages in Kenya, Ethiopia, and Tanzania. Well done, Samsung. Now, according to the World Bank, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa accounts for more than 50% of all the out-of-school children worldwide. Now, I had no idea things were that dire in our part of the world. And of course, this affects people, you know, children's future employment opportunities. And Samsung is stepping in going, um, at the heart of the very least, uh, a modern child needs to know and be ready to face the world with is, uh, is digital competencies. And so they'll be, you know, sending out shipping containers uh, um, all, over the, the, all over Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, and Tanzania. And the, the digital villages they expect will, will be similar to Kenya's Pasha centers, and they'll focus on meeting the challenges that um, underserved rural communities are facing in terms of accessing ICT and related infrastructure. Very interesting. I'd, I'd like to know how much of this has been as a result many years ago of Solar City investing in, in solar and dropping the cost to a point where other companies can leverage off it and put it into African countries. I, I think it's very interesting. I might be completely misled in that belief, but it would be quite interesting to, and, and it is quite interesting noting the catalyst since Solar City have got such a reputation, how these solar projects have, have tended to steamroll since the implementation or since the, the founding of Solar City. Absolutely. And then big stars like Akon with his um, Lighting Africa, I think Lighting Up Africa initiative. I can't remember what it's called, but people like him really bringing attention to, you know, doing practical things to help Africa out. When I say helping Africa out, I mean that uh, I say that very carefully because in many cases, uh, Africa is doing just fine without without these things. And, and and often companies just use this as as a, you know, sort of glorified PR. Samsung, we're watching you. <laughs> we hope you're actually making a difference here. And please let us know if if you're in Kenya, Ethiopia, or indeed in Tanzania, whether these containers are in fact making a difference. Now, moving on to our next story. Again, an interesting story involving solar, but uh, in Kenya this time, where a Kenyan solar consumer tech firm called Mkopa is uh, creating quite a buzz at the moment following the launch of their latest product offering. Now, they've just launched a 16-inch solar-powered digital television, which costs just over 530 US dollars. This is dope. Very interesting. I'm, I don't know whether or not I believe this just yet. I'm sure it is, in fact, believable, but I do know that I have um, a solar-powered cell phone charger, and I don't think it's ever worked. So the ability to power a 16-inch TV, um, I, I, I would love to see that. I really, really would. 
Look, among other things, MCOPA originally distributed solar lighting kits um, across East African homes, um, solar kits which included uh, charging kits for, for di- to digital devices, as well as basic lighting for, for a small home. And they were charging people as little as 50 cents, or they are. Uh, they continue to charge people some, as little as 50 cents a day for these kits. And now they're saying, listen, um, continue your subscription with us, and we'll roll in a television for you. And they're making this available through their hundreds of deals in Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. Like you say, I, I, I can't speak for the technology, but certainly a lot of excitement coming out of the Eastern African region around this. this. Please let us know if, if you've bought one or if you've used one and how well it works. How much sunlight does, does it need? <laughs> on a rainy day, when you tend to sit inside, can you watch it on a rainy day? What sort of batteries does it use? Listen, MCOPA, if you're listening to us and you want to give us a little more insight about how it all works um, and, and the, the technological aspects to it. And, of course, if you're a consumer using it right now, we want to hear from you. You know how to do it. On Twitter, we are at African Roundup. Give us a shout. Now to South Africa Next, where MTN cannot seem to catch a break, people. Now, over a million users in South Africa uh, were affected by network outages this past week. And... Further than that, the stock took a beating. Uh, they're listed, of course, on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, and they took a massive beating, something like 16% at some point uh, on Friday. Goodness me. And that was off the back of them announcing uh, that essentially their profit, uh, their profit uh, projections were going to come in lower by more than 20% for the year ended December 2015. MTN in trouble, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yep, that in addition to, I think they've lost 44% of their stock over the last eight months, including the, what is it, the $5.2 billion fine, which I think was subsequently lowered, amounting to, I think it's more than two years of their ordinary capital outlay. So they are hurting, absolutely hurting. In addition to that, obviously Cameroon have now filed for anti-competitive behavior, I think, for certain illegal tax rebates. So they really are in hot water at the moment. Um, in addition to that, five minutes ago, AfriHost, a subsidiary of MTN, I think they're struggling with the volumes or, or something to do with their data center. I've just got a recent email from them apologizing profusely for their inability to handle uh, certain traffic requests to their sites. So they really are in hot water, and uh, hopefully we'll see them getting out of this problem sometime soon. Look, uh, AfriHost gave me something like 150. 152 free gigs this past week. Again, it was a thank you for being on our network. Those of you who don't know, AfriHost was, I think, brought up in, I think in 2015, it was, was acquired by MTN and huge fans of the company worried that the association would, would, uh, would uh, not rub off on them very well. And so far, to be honest, it's be, their association with MTN has been a little more than just a small liability, I'd say. Uh, that said, we'll be speaking a little more about MTN's uh, legal woes across the continent and seeing what you might suggest uh, <laughs> they do or think about uh, in, in going forward, Kyle. In the meantime, though, if you're a client of MTN's who bought one-day data bundles during the two days over the last week when the network problems occurred, they've promised to refund you. Um, let us know if they've come through on that. And uh, certainly, if you're still experiencing problems, we'd love for you to let us know. Next up, though, how sneaky is Google South Africa, though? They've quietly launched a video-on-demand service through the Google Play platform. Now, this comes as a surprise. 
given how only two months ago they launched uh, their music streaming service on Google Play Music in South Africa. And they've since offered subscribers access to something like 35 million songs using the service. And uh, that includes a huge catalog of South African music, which is a really good move in, in capturing the local market, all for less than $4 a month. How do you think they're making money? Well, apart from their massive revenue they make on search, I don't think they've got too many other worries. I think they can experiment in so many different areas and not be afraid to make a loss. Um, I'm listening to a book on Audible at the moment called uh, In the Plex, and it's it amazes me how they've gone so far from from their core business of search into just being able to afford research and development in every other aspect. I mean, it's 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 absolutely amazing. In relation to this specifically, I, w- I would think that they're making a loss on it initially. I'm sure they are. I think it's, it's, it's subsidized by the search-related services and revenue from ads. Um, but apart from that, it's only a thumb sucker, I think, from my side. <laughs> and they're just chilling. I, I, I imagine companies like Google and Facebook, these huge, uh, these huge monsters that we can't imagine life without, are thinking quite humbly about a future that might not include them and thinking, hey, what do we need to do now to make sure in, say, 50 years' time we're still, we're still a thing, which is a good thing. Yeah. I think, uh, obviously, with, with most tech companies, I think they're looking to no longer have all the eggs in one basket. Look how easily a, a legacy internet company can be upended. I don't know if you recall Excite the, the, and AltaVista, the search engines prior to Google. They didn't have that foresight. They kept all their eggs in one basket, and where are they now? They, they're nowhere. They don't exist anymore. The fact that I don't even remember them is testament to that fact. <laughs> I think indeed, indeed. So yeah, listen, if you're in any one of these countries, now listen out. If you're in Angola, Benin, Botswana, Gabon, um, Ivory Coast, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Mali, Malta, Mauritius, Namibia, Niger, Rwanda, Senegal, South Africa, Tanzania, Togo, Uganda, Zambia, or Zimbabwe, Oddly, Nigeria and Kenya are not in this list, which is crazy. Uh, that, that'd be an interesting, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall of the boardroom of, of Google to, to, to figure out why they left out Nigeria and Kenya. I think, I wonder if it's also in relation to the Kenyan dispute or how they want to treat Netflix. Does that feed into this whole Google video on demand streaming service? I don't know. It may just. They let, they, they, it's possible that they let Netflix go see and they're like, ooh, thank you so much for being our, our guinea pigs. <laughs> there must be. I, I, I mean, why else, would you, why else would you leave Kenya out, man? I wouldn't know. I honestly wouldn't know. It has to be something with the regulation. It has to be that there's a bigger player in the market being Netflix, a slightly more established player, or it could well be the regulators trying to see how they're going to treat it. Are they going to regulate it? Are they going to be, or are they going to be allowed to sort of act with carte blanche in the company? I don't know. I think time will only tell. Oh, well, if you, in any case, if you're in any of the African countries I listed, you can access Google Play movies right now. Uh, you can expect to pay something like, uh, $2.25 for the latest blockbusters. That's if you, if you just want to rent them. Otherwise, if you want to buy the latest flicks outright, it'll cost you just under $10, which is, again, an incredible price point. And I think uh, what most people don't realize is it's not only available on mobiles. If you've got an Apple phone or something like that or something which doesn't support Android, you can still sign up through the net, through your PC, which, which I thought was very interesting. This is brilliant. Uh, smart move, Google. Let's see how well they do, but uh, not to be outdone. Kenya's Jami Telecoms has launched a VOD subscription service called Fiber TV, and it comes with an Android box. Now, this is a little different. This is more a, a, a hardware play because they've come out saying, uh, we're not in it for the content. We're just here to enable you to, to have your favorite subscriptions uh, available anytime you like. So 
take your pick, Netflix, Google, Google, Google Movies, uh, Hulu Plus, Kodi, Cloud TV. You can do it all. Um, anything over the top uh, is, is, is fair game for this Android-based device. And um, they, they also have a, a package of their own which uh, delivers uh, premium pay TV content such as the Super Sports ha- channels as well as English Premier League football for something like $9.90, which is pretty pretty awesome. I don't know how big this market is, though, and what, what's behind them joining the market at a time like this when it's so crowded. You know, and I think it's a good move. They've taken a slightly different plan. They are providing the infrastructure, and that's the natural barrier to entry to all your show maxes, to all your Netflix, is that, yeah, it's all well and good wanting the service, but if you've got a one-meg line, you can't watch it. So by providing everything, I think that gives them a great advantage into the system. And I, and I quite like the, the, the play on words there, fiber. I think it's fiber TV. <laughs> Fiber TV, look, Fiber TV, so it's uh, F-A-I-B-A, Fiber TV, nice one, guys. Uh, keeping, it, uh, keeping it local and lacquer, uh, well done to you for, for, for coming up with that one. Look, so far, only affluent neighborhoods uh, in, in uh, Kenya being serviced, Karen, uh, Lavington, uh, Kileleshwa, Rwanda, and then, of course, if you're in Nairobi CBD, in, the, in Westlands, in the industrial area, in Mombasa, in Akuru, Eldoret, and Kisumu, those are the places they're, they're targeting first, quite similar to how fiber is being introduced to neighborhoods in South Africa, uh, particularly in Gauteng. At least I've noticed that uh, northern suburbs being targeted first. I suppose they want a, a, a solid test case for whether there's a demand for this product or not. Well, you let us know, Kenya. Um, they're bundling a service that allows you to access the not only the fiber you need, but the data you need at a, at a reasonable price because you will need uh, a certain broadband speed uh, to, to achieve this. What have they said? Something like? Yeah, five megs, I think, uh, which, which sounds about right to, 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 to stream HD content. Um, but all, what's also interesting is that it also comes with the box. So it's not only it's not it's the infrastructure, it's the data, it's the box. Um, so I think it's a very very good bundled package. I really do. I'm sure DSTV is patting itself on the back every two seconds when stories like this come out, going, "Thank goodness we put out Showmax." Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, following the publication of new research from Gartner last week showing that Windows' share of the global smartphone market has slumped to just 1.1% as per the year ending December 2015. That's down from 2.8% the previous year. Now, And also amidst rumors that Microsoft could soon itself abandon Windows on smartphones in favor of Android, South Africa's first national bank has decided to cease development of its Windows app. This is plain business sense, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, it it looks like they've given up on the game already. I mean, they've resorted now to launching apps on the various stores anyway. So they're a software company. They must stick to software. I mean, hardware-related, they are dealing with uh, something that they're not accustomed to deal with. So keep with what they know, and I think they've already realized that. I suppose they're trying to innovate uh, broadly like their their counterparts in in other parts of tech, you know, you know. Uh, Google and Facebook and that kind of thing. This one is one they ought to sort of cut their losses on, I think. I think so, absolutely. I mean, what Google phone is it? There's a Google Nexus, I think. I don't think that's doing particularly well. So I don't think uh, innovating into an area where you're not accustomed to dealing with is is the right move in this sense. 
even if you're a big guy. Listen, they've cited, uh, FNB has cited uh, a lack of consumer demand for their Windows app. No, well, no kidding, buddies. If, if they only own 1% of the market, just over 1% of the market, well, no wonder no one's interested. But uh, not only is Windows being scrapped by FNB, but also their BlackBerry 7 app will no longer be uh, getting upgrades from this point on. They've decided to concentrate on Android, iOS, and BlackBerry 10. This is pretty emphatic news coming out of FNB. I've seen them moving towards a unified omni-channel strategy, you know, even announcing that they're going to be exposing the API of their new platforms to a wider development community. This is this is very innovative thinking from a bank, traditionally speaking. Uh, has a bank ever opened up the API? I mean, I think that the prospect for innovation and leveraging off that, I mean, is is is, is endless. I think it's it's down to the imagination at the end of the day with what you can do with that. So, as FNB has always done, they've been ahead of the market. They're so innovative. I think it's a great move by them. Well, yes, don't get too excited, developers, because they have said it's a, it's a, a lip, there's limited scope for exposing their API, and it's not just for anybody. They will be playing with looking to play with big name brands initially, but still. Um, encouraging news coming out of a bank. And we know that industry is not one for innovation, uh, at least not until they have to. So well done to you, FNB. Now staying with South Africa, cellular service provider Glowcell announced last week that they had acquired Altec Autopage's Cell C subscriber base for an undisclosed sum. I hate it when they do that uh, and not tell us what, <laughs> what the deal's worth. This follows the deal being greenlit by the Competition Commission in South Africa. Now Cell C later put out a statement of its own saying that Glowcell had only been appointed as, quote, a new service agent, which uh, will service the customers being transferred from AutoPage to Cell C. Now, I guess someone didn't read the fine print properly over at Glowcell and understand what, they, in fact, they were buying. Um, I've got no knowledge of this transaction. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, as soon as I said the word legal, he's like, nope. <laughs> what you might remember us talking about uh, some weeks ago or at least months ago, is the fact that MTN and Vodacom acquired their respective databases from Autopage. And um, this is after Autopage's parent company, Altron, decided to buy out completely of the mobile service provider market last year. So this past year has been pretty tricky for Altron. They basically admitted defeat when it came to the Altec node, which was a huge disaster. Now it seems they're flogging Autopage uh, for parts. Uh, it's rough out here. The Altec node is only in the market for what, a year? A year was enough to hemorrhage significant sums. Uh, it really should have been uh, nipped in the butt a lot sooner. I think so, but I think, to be honest with you, I think someone's going to win that market. I don't think that that market's dead at all. We've all seen these bundled packages coming out with these specific nodes that have Netflix and whatnot on them. So to be honest, I think they're barred out of it prematurely. Also at a time when, especially in South Africa, when all the neighborhoods are starting to get fiber now that are able to support um, platforms like the Altec nodes. So yes, it might have been hemorrhaging, but I think uh, they're, they're barred out a little bit too early. Well, it remains to be seen. Certainly the databases they've built through uh through subsidiaries like Autopage being significantly valuable. Uh, perhaps it's a function of just not knowing how to sweat those assets. And, um, well, back in the hands of MTN, Vodacom, and Salsi, respectively, as it turns out. Uh, let's see how it goes from here. Our final news story, and easily the biggest story of the week, comes out of Uganda. Now, we all know the country's most closely contested elections in decades took place this past week, and it pitted the incumbent Yoweri Museveni, who has ruled the country for almost three decades, 
against seven other candidates, including his ex-doctor and former prime minister. Now, in a shocking move, Uganda's government instructed local broadcasters and mobile networks to block access to social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook on the day of the election. What would happen if if that happened here in South Africa, uh, do you think, Kyle? I think there'd be a huge uproar, but I understand the logic behind it. And this is why polls and whatnot are banned in the UK, um, as opposed to the US, where you got some sort of idea of where the standings are between the different pres- uh, presidential candidates. Um, and something like this could potentially influence who you vote for. So I understand the logic, uh, but from a freedom of expression point of view, oh, it doesn't make much sense. You, you're bringing up something interesting that we might as well start talking with now because this is really the springboard into our discussion this week where we're going to be going through a lot of the legal uh, issues, uh, at least some of the more important legal issues we've, we've come across in covering tech on the, on the continent in the last quarter. Um, you, you, something you're saying implies to me that democracy does have limits and, and different countries do have to determine those limits for themselves. And this is not an outright human right violation by any means, do you think? It isn't, but uh, if, if you look at human rights violations in every and, – and, and this is specifically with regard to the South African constitution – you can violate or infringe on human rights provided there is what's known as a justifiable limitation, and that is section 36 of the constitution. If based on a, on, on a balance of those two competing factors, um, it is decided that it's justifiably limited. Initially, um, in terms of the right to life, the right to freedom of expression, um, that is where it can be justifiably limited, where, for example, it tends to defame someone. That's a balance of the right to freedom of expression versus unjustifiably uh, encroaching on someone's dignity. I suppose hate speech is another example where, I mean, technically you have the right to say anything you like. However, if in, in, the, in the case of South Africa, certainly if you, if you spew hate speech, uh, you, it's prosecutable. Absolutely, absolutely. Speaking on the social media debate in a TV interview, Mr. Museveni was quoted, has been quoted as saying that some people uh, misuse those pathways and, uh, and use them to tell lies. And all he wants is for them to be used right and for them to be used properly. I guess... That's just up for interpretation is the problem. Uh, I suppose coming from someone who's ruled for nearly 30 years, it's being argued now that for the first time since he came to power, this is the first time he's actually at risk of losing power. And not because he doesn't have a comfortable lead over his nearest rival, but because the winning candidate in Uganda, apparently by law, needs to secure more than 50% of the vote to avoid a runoff with the second ranked contender, which is something Museveni, no doubt, would want to avoid at all costs. Now, that's a case made for why he might want to block social media. It isn't given that that's the reason. It could very well be he has very strong and defensible reasons like you've just described in, in the UK. Yeah, I think also most people tend to favor the underdog. And I think uh, that that will really come across on, on social media platforms. And through that would result in possible influencing of voters, which could eventually result in him possibly losing the election. So... Yes, I can see his point of view, but I certainly don't think it's justifiable, to be honest with you. And of course, uh, America's brand of democracy says that influence as much as you can. Uh, there are brands of democracy around the world where we want to limit influence yeah. uh, in order for people to make up their minds on their own without, without it. And um, I guess countries get to choose for themselves. In this case, many journalists, activists, and regular citizens uh, did spend uh, Thursday, Friday, and even into the weekend circulating ways people could access social media via VPN services like Tunnelbar. As at the time of the recording of this podcast, the, the results haven't been released, 
But I'm guessing that Mr. Museveni will have uh, been declared the winner by the time you listen to this. That said, there's another question that pops into my mind. Civil disobedience, which essentially this is. If the government pronounces a ban on social media, and even someone like the former Prime Minister, Amama Mbabazi, who himself on, on Twitter encouraged people to go and, and get VPN so that they could participate on social media, essentially encouraging civil disobedience. This is, this is weird territory, man, isn't it? I think so, absolutely. I think through the use of VPNs, I mean, I don't think you're going to get many people who even know how to sign up for VPN. So to be honest with you, I don't think it'll be a statistically significant number of people who will be able to make an influence through that. But you know what, try what you can. But encouraging civil disobedience, you know what, I don't think it goes that far because people are used to and have a right, I feel, to have access to Facebook and Twitter. So you know what, rather just give them access to something that they're accustomed to having access to. It's not like you're telling them to go out and rage a street war or something to that effect. I see. Now, what do you feel Twitter's role or Facebook's role should be in a debate like this? Uh, Twitter, of course, released a statement on Twitter, so so predictably, uh, <laughs> saying that they were aware of users reporting blocked access to their platform. But is that enough? I mean, surely as, as a major platform like Twitter, like Facebook, you should be in a position to perhaps demand that governments uh, behave in a certain way uh, in order for you to you know, comfortably operate in their countries. Well, I think they can kick and scream as much as they want, but where has it got them in terms of China or North Korea in terms of getting into those countries? Kicking and screaming hasn't worked in the past, um, to the best of my knowledge, so I don't think it'll do much here. And now this story provides the perfect segue for us to discuss some of the the other high-profile legal matters that have rocked our world in the last three to six months, at least that uh, that's our world with regards to digital tech and innovation. Now, in broad strokes, I'm going to ask you, Kyle, to give me, you know, a sense of the type of legal considerations, you know, one might one might make if if they were involved in in the following situation. So we'll start easy. <laughs> <laughs> easy being what I presume MTN. MTN, yeah, shame, man. They're, they're the big target of the moment. They're, they're, just, they're just dominating headlines. We have to start with them. So it's MTN versus the, the NCC, the Nigerian Communications Commission. Uh, then it's MTN's anti-competitive behavior, or at least alleged anti-competitive behavior in Cameroon. In fact, it's not alleged because a judge basically called, uh, you know, called them out on it. MTN versus Tisalat in Nigeria over, one, their acquisition of VisaPhone and their consequent desire to use the 800 megahertz spectrum, uh, presumably to extend their 4G network. And then it's MTN versus a, a copyright body here in South Africa over unpaid royalties. It's MTN against everyone. And then it's MTN. Oh, my word. What do you have to say about MTN? If you were advi- if you were a legal counsel to MTN at the moment, what would you be, what would one of the things you'd be saying to them right now? Well, from from a share price perspective, make something right. I mean, they've uh, failed to pay back the penalty that they were meant to do, I think, before the 15th of December um, in relation to all their unregistered SIM cards, at the very least comply with some form of court order. The reality is here, they could be regarded by by failing to, to, to deregister these cards as being complicit in certain criminal activities. And I have a feeling that's where eventually this might land up if they carry on dragging their feet in terms of paying the fine. But that being said, paying two years worth of your 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 capital expenditure is fairly hard especially when your share price has dipped so significantly in the past uh, eight months or so if this was america i bet they'd be ripe for class action suits because of the things that basically left undone 
uh, at least in that regard, with with all the terrorist threats that are besetting Nigeria at this point, and and parents losing their children to uh, to to rebel factions and things like that, uh, one could could definitely make a case, I think, for for holding holding it against MTN for not. Uh, at least trying to comply and make sure you know terrorists can't use their 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 lines to do to do their business. Yeah, conceivable. Um, I don't know how much of the information has been released regarding. Well, I suppose they don't know who the SIM cards were registered to. Having a class action, you can't just walk into any court and just allege something without having some sort of prima facie proof. Um, and I I don't see it in this case. But yes, if they had that sort of proof, which I can't see them getting, uh, certainly. Definitely. Apart from that, criminal actions, I mean, against the – this is something that would, that would warrant possibly piercing the corporate veil, which means you can go after the directors of MTN, being that they were complicit and failed to comply with their fiduciary duties towards the company and nail them for being essentially complicit in what has been alleged to be uh, criminal activities, such as some of those SIM cards being used for Boko Haram militants is uh, terrifying to say the least and you wonder why they've actually sat in a position and not deregistered their sim cards i mean i i haven't seen i mean to, to the best of my knowledge they've been fairly quiet on this issue i don't i haven't seen a solid reason for them failing to deregister this it's it's probably a case of listen i mean it it might amount to a significant percentage of their users and as such it might significantly impact their turnover which i suspect would be the reason but i don't think it's warranted in this instance at all Sure, MTN will leave you alone for the moment, but uh, it's not sounding good so far. <laughs> so listen, uh, Vodacom next. Uh, so it's Vodacom versus an employee in the DRC, and I will recall, I will speak a little more about that. And then, of course, there's Vodacom with regards to, you know, another employee in South Africa around the callback situation. So let's start with the, the DRC situation. Vodacom owning 51% of their operations in the DRC, 49% belonging to a consortium. A court ousting the gentleman in charge of that consortium and that gentleman taking Vodacom to court, uh, alleging that Vodacom colluded with the courts. I mean, yeah, that, that's exactly what he is alleging. I haven't seen any evidence substantiating that at all. I mean, it, it, in terms of all the research I've done, I don't know, maybe I've missed something, but um, I think it might be a bit of a wild goose chase. And to back that up, I think he's uh, slapping them with, what is it, a 200 billion rand? Um, I'm not too sure the... The, the, the local currency equivalent of that. Uh, a lot of money. A lot of money. A lot of money. A whack load of money. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really sounds like it's just smoke and mirrors in terms of this case. And I can't see... I mean, I like to believe that our, uh, the legal system in Africa isn't susceptible to abuse, but uh, I think my gut feeling tells me that there might be something a little bit fishy. I'm hoping, I'm, I'm hoping not, though, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm sad to say that um, you know your faith in the legal justice in the justice system, notwithstanding TIA, my friend. This is Africa, and I and it's it's not terribly far fetched for me to imagine a scenario where an entity as powerful as Vodacom in D the DRC could be found to have uh, an inappropriate relationship with with people in the justice system. That said, proof is the key word in what I think you, I heard you say earlier. Yeah. Well. Interestingly, what's what, what's quite interesting about this scenario is to remove a director, you ordinarily need 75% of the votes to remove that director. In this instance, he was the majority shareholder in the local consortium. So he would have had more than 25% of that local consortium, which means that the board wouldn't be able to push him out, which means that a court order would, is most likely the only way of getting rid of him. So yes, it is conceivable. or it's It's likely that that's the only route they could have gone. So yes, there could have been... Having a think about it, there could have been some fishy play here. 
So here's another employee now, this one in South Africa, uh, claiming to have uh, created the callback, uh, invented the, the call me back, uh, which has made uh, Vodacom and indeed mobile networks around the world a ton of money. Now he claims to have made this on his spare time. Vodacom going, I, buddy, you worked for us and now you want us to pay what? Uh, are you batting for the little guy in this one? Um, yes. I mean, I've had, a, I've had a read over quite a bit of literature regarding this, and I find it quite interesting in that he should have instituted his claim a lot earlier. I think he was, I think it was around about 2000, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it was, was it? I think it was around about then, yeah. He only instituted his claim in 2008, and there's something called the Prescription Act, which means that no debts or majority of debts can't be recovered after a three-year period, which was a little bit silly on his side. But what he could have gone, and I think this is the route he's looking at in the Supreme Court of Appeal, is to show that there's still a contract in place. It might have been verbal, very hard to prove. There's still a contract in place, which means that he should be able to recover all debts three years prior to him instituting that, the, the, the latest claim. And I take it that is still a significant sum of money considering the revenue that uh, a company like Vodacom would have made from that simple invention. Yeah, I think it's what it's, it'll still be somewhere in the region of about 2 billion rand, if I'm not mistaken. I'm sure he'd be happy to walk away with that. Well, I th you think? I think so. <laughs> now, moving on to uh, Uber versus the taxi industry all over the world. <laughs> Specific to us uh, here on the continent, Kenya, South Africa, and Egypt making the most noise. Uh, certainly Kenya and Egypt more recently. The taxi industries in Kenya and Egypt really not happy with the very notion of Uber's existence. Had you been legal counsel to Uber planning to enter the African region? What sort of considerations would you have had them take into account? Yeah, my, my legal advisory hat on, yes, I would certainly advise them to look at every possible permit that they have to register for. It's logical from that perspective. My startup hat on, which I much prefer, I'd rather that they just come in, take over the market and apologize if necessary after violating whatever per permit laws there are. Wait, hang on a minute. Is Uber one of your clients? Because that's exactly what they did. <laughs> um, I wish. Can you send them my way, please? Well, listen, um, I guess that's exactly what they're doing. They're definitely relying on deep pockets and their ability to move in and out um, or at least deploy very quickly and very efficiently in new markets uh, to, you know, and, uh, and, and basically take the heat whenever it comes. Uh, and it seems to be working for them. It's hard to fault them, uh, except that we, we know that they're making absolutely no profits, which, uh, which uh, I suppose... Uh, they, they can't be faulted for given how many Silicon Valley uh, alumni <laughs> very rarely do make money for the first, I don't know, 15 years they exist. <laughs> so yeah, so you'd, you'd say carry on. Yeah, I would say carry on. I think it's, I love their model. Um, I think it's only a matter of time. I, I know in California, they've got one judgment where it's one of their, their drivers has been deemed an employee. As soon as that happens, and as soon as the rest of the world starts following, all of a sudden their very disruptive pricing model is going to change completely because they're going to have to take into account PAYE, UAIF, or whatever the local form of employee taxes are. And that'll considerably change their pricing point in relation to where they are versus, uh, versus the other taxis in the industry, which will be very, very interesting. So advise the taxi industries, at least the organized associations within South Africa and Egypt and, and Kenya. Imagine for a moment you're advising them as to how to survive the onslaught of technology on, 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 <laughs> on their legacy business and, and how to negotiate or perhaps learn to work with the likes of Uber if they're going to be part of the future. 
Well, first of all, I would advise them more from a tech side of developing an app that has similar functionality. For goodness sake, it has to happen. It really, really does. Um, from, from a legal perspective, yes, go with them from an employee basis. They're not subcontractors. The reality is they're dependent entirely for work on, or, on, on, on Uber itself. From an Uber perspective, I'd say to my drivers, listen, guys, try find something else for 50% of your income because all of a sudden – as soon as they're not making majority of their income from Uber, it's far easier to argue that they're subcontractors and not employees. Why not? And what about lobbying government to, to just create a tax regime that makes it freaking impossible for Uber to exist? <laughs> yeah, that could happen. I think that's… Or is that short-sighted? I think it's fairly short-sighted. You know what? Governments might prefer, especially if there is a local taxi industry favoring local companies and whatnot, I think they'd prefer to keep the money in the country as opposed to releasing it to Uber going outside the country. Yeah, I don't know, lobbying, I find it's got very mixed results. Um, and I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon, but uh, I hope I'm proved wrong. Well, speaking of lobbying, you've got Vodacom and MTN who've been lobbying the South African government uh, to regulate over-the-top services like WhatsApp and WeChat and so on. There's a Nigerian lobby for, for similar things to go on in Nigeria. Sure. So we're calling the next, the next one OTTs versus mobile telcos in South African Nigeria. Defend the cause of the mobile telcos, please. Well, I'm the one who's provided the infrastructure for the last 20 years. If I wasn't here, you wouldn't be able to provide your service. My legacy service has, apart from voice calls, been messaging services. Now, all of a sudden, you've got over-the-top services like WhatsApp offering both and offering it for free. So it's a web of considerations here. I mean, yes, you can understand why they would have some gripe. But the reality is, and this is more from WhatsApp's point of view, is data is still being used regardless. WhatsApp doesn't provide the data. So, yes, you might lose on the markups you would make on phone calls and, and messaging services. But at the end of the day, data is being used and more data can be consumed relative to the amount that would otherwise be used through messages and voice calls. And let's be honest, voice call revenue is taking a nosedive and you guys are feeling the pinch. You're struggling to to, to switch your infrastructure and, uh, and let's be honest, your leadership is trying to please shareholders in the short term. You're not thinking far enough, guys. This is me speaking for the OTTs. Come on. You need, to, you need us um, a lot more than we need you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, now I know very little about this, but it's really exciting because some interesting ideas taken from the American experience, at least the United States of America and their experience in terms of growing the tech startup uh, scene, are now being introduced into the South African market by incentivizing its growth through interesting tax law. Yeah, since I think it is August 2009, um, you have what are known as Section 12J companies. They're essentially venture capital companies where all the money that they invest into small startups, qualifying companies, um, they get as a tax rebate. So it's a very interesting tax relief structure to try to promote and incentivize the investment in for small businesses because traditionally our VC market is so naive or so reluctant to invest in early stage startups. I read quite an interesting article probably about – Oh, uh, is maybe about three years ago, where I think with, with, our, with the South African VC um, landscape, we're in the top 10% of VC investment for bigger companies. But in respect of small startups, we know we're on the radar. So it's a, there's a lot of funding, 
available, but it certainly isn't going towards startups. So these tax relief or tax incentive programs, um, I think, are really going to change the game. And I think uh, Knife Capital has pioneered that here in South Africa, which has been really, really interesting. Um, and we're actually in the process of helping out uh, one of our Lexnove clients to register a 12J company. It's very much in its infancy. Not many people know about it. There's only a handful of these companies in the country, but I think it could really change the playing field in the future. Is this something that major startup hubs on the continent, Lagos, Tunis, uh, Nairobi, Cairo, could, could this become a competitive edge for the startup scene in, in uh, Cape Town, in Johannesburg, do you think, uh, against uh, our brothers up north? You know, certainly, I think everyone goes to where the funding is. That's the natural magnet to Silicon Valley, for example. So if we create a natural magnet here, or whoever in Africa creates a natural magnet, yes. Um, because at the end of the day, startups have to survive. And if surviving means following the funding, you have to do it, unfortunately. And what would you say to an investor with a lot of money looking to, to put their money in? What's the best way to sort of like uh, you know, test the waters in this, in the, in this regard? Is it, is it safe? Are we talking high-risk investment still? Does this vehicle create a safety net that perhaps didn't exist before this whole scenario existed? Well, unfortunately, it doesn't really change the risk profile of what you want to invest in. If anything, it actually it, it, it requires that it is a fairly high-risk vehicle that you invest in because it has to be a very small company at the time. And obviously, small companies are by their very nature – pretty high risk. Um, there are certain uh, um, barriers or ceilings at the end of the day. I think it's if you invest more than 18 million rand um, in any given fund, then unfortunately the commission can take away your section 12J status. So yeah, high risk, yes, unfortunately it doesn't change much on that perspective, but they really are gunning at the tax relief and they're hoping that saving of whatever it is around about 28% in investments like that will really spur investment. I suppose on the part of South African government, uh, scale is just as important to them. They're, they're not trying to create an elite club of investment here. They, they really are trying to incentivize as many investors to invest in as many promising small ventures as possible, as opposed to lots of investors pouring little bits of money into one big idea. So, yeah, I think it supports both sides of the, if you can call it a double-sided marketplace. There's small VCs that can't invest more than, I think it's 80 million rand, I stand to be corrected, and small companies. So it's going to try to spur the growth on both sides of the platform, which is very interesting. Instead of relying on your enterprise development spend of big corporates to trickle down, although they've got their own sort of ED points and, and rewards that they have, it is a slightly different structure to that. So it remains to be seen how well it will work because it's not a statistically significant number as yet, um, but I think it's a very interesting vehicle. Okay, wow, we've been talking a while, but I think I've been I've been having fun. So one more, one more, one more with the legal eagle. So uh, I want your thoughts on the freebasics.org situation. This this net neutrality debate. We we spoke about it at length last week. Since we won't go into the nitty gritties as much, I have a very simple question. India's bandit. Um, quite a few African nations, at least eleven, I think, at least eleven or twelve, are, are basically loving it. Um, What's your take with regards to stopping companies like Facebook offering internet light opportunities for people who might never access the internet at all? And is there an argument for using uh, philosophical or, or idealistic reasons for preventing companies like them from doing what seems to be 
at least some good. Well, I think, okay, there are two sides of the coin here. Yes, it's great to give access to a portion of the internet that people would otherwise not have. That is great. But obviously, it's a restricted form of access. Net neutrality seems to be, it really is the premise of the internet. The internet is, by its very nature, probably one of the most open and democratic platforms in history. Um, from a legal perspective, I mean, there is the argument once, for example, let's say the freebasics.org garners, let's say, 60% of the population, all of a sudden you're going to have competition commission triggers um, that come into play. Are they now dominant in that specific market and hence wouldn't be able to invest in further infrastructure or further partnerships that would increase its dominance. So that's, I mean, it's very much in its infancy. Um, Personally, I feel that uh, some form of internet is better than no internet. And I do feel that the Google Loon project at some stage will allow, to the best of my knowledge, a free full version of the internet anyway. Here's a quick test. Assuming free basics rolls out um, all over the continent, and one of the free rated services as part of that project is legal services, except it's not Lexner. <laughs> it's someone else. Doesn't that instantly demonstrate the danger of permitting it to start with, given their ability to, as you say, over time, you know, develop a monopolistic, you know, position? Sure. I, I do feel there are different um, sort of standards or different sort of levels in how they could implement it. If it is just Facebook implemented by Facebook, I think that's far easily argued or justified. If it's Facebook with a select number of other partnerships, I think then people would kick and scream. Which it is. Yeah. I think people will kick and scream then. Basically, it's Facebook and its homies. There's a beautifully little walled garden and um, Facebook and friends get to play and Everyone else must stay outside. And yeah, I, I personally find it problematic. That said, uh, I'm not in a remote part of the continent without internet access and, and all the amazing things it can bring me. So yeah, I guess it's, um, it's not cut and dry. No, it isn't. But I think uh, Wikipedia and whatnot being bundled in there, reference type services, I don't think anyone can argue with. If I got, I don't think you'll find the likes of Amazon kicking and screaming because um, Wikipedia has been allowed on the platform. I really don't because that really is providing a great resource to the company. Suppose then the other argument is Facebook is inherently a for profit venture. Mm -hmm. And that part of its inherent strategy is to keep as many people, or recruit and keep as many people in its in its ecosystem for as long as possible. And, and presumably this is part of their strategy to do that. And indirectly, call it what you want, non-profit or not, Free Basics is part of a for-profit strategy for Facebook to stay alive and make significant profits over time. They will say that, but they'll justify it on the basis of the users in the country accessing it and using it for free with a very small percentage in the first world or third world countries that can afford it paying for the service. And that's surely how they'll justify it. Well, all I can say is we're watching y'all. We're watching y'all. We're not going to let this one drop. Listen, we've, uh, we'd love to have your take on all the issues we've discussed, any of the issues we've discussed. We thought a roundup was required, a roundup within a roundup, the roundup on the African Tech Roundup, <laughs> courtesy of, of Lex Nov and Kyle here, who's, who's uh, one half of the incredible team over at Lex Nov. Now, do you disagree or agree with our perspectives? Well, let us know. Uh, perhaps you have a question for Kyle or his co-founding partner, Andrew Taylor. 
uh, we'll no doubt have them back on the show <laughs> sometime in the future. That has to happen. But listen, have your say. Get in touch with us uh, on Twitter. We're at African Roundup. Drop us an email on hello at africantechroundup.com. Uh, you can also send us a voice note uh, with uh, an audio comment uh, if you'd like us to include it in a future show, telling us what you think of the state of legal uh, across the board in tech, digital, and innovation across the continent. Uh, give us a shout on uh, on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup, or head straight to our website, africantechroundup.com, and you can leave a comment directly on the website. Otherwise, once again, today's episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Audible. They're offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Now, we recommend a great book called Hacked Again by Scott Scober and narrated by John Pruden. We think it's a fitting choice given that for the second time in as many weeks, the South African government has been hacked. Yes, this time the Department of Water and Sanitation has been hit by the World Hacker Team, which leaked personal data data of an estimated 5,800 employees and collaborators. I had to gain details the ins and outs of a cybersecurity expert and CEO of a top wireless security tech firm, Scott Scoba, as he struggles to understand the motives and mayhem behind his being hacked. Now, amidst the backdrop of major breaches, Scott shares tips and best practices for all consumers, including the Department of Water and Sanitation in South Africa. Now, to get hacked again or any other audiobook of your choice for free right now, head straight to audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech. That's audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech. Otherwise, folks, that's it for this week. A huge thank you to you, Kyle Torrington. How often do you get called by your name and surname? Only by my parents. Well, then. <laughs> well, I'm adding to that list, Kyle Torrington. Thanks. Am I in trouble? No, you're absolutely not in trouble unless you refuse our invite to have you back on the show again. Kyle Tarrington of Lexnove, uh, thank you once again for joining us this week. Don't be a stranger, chap. Don't. Andile, thanks very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I really have. Guys out there, enjoy the rest of your week and we'll see you later. Defo will definitely be back next week and I look forward to being back on the mic with him. But till then, I'm Andile Masugu. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>